This might just be me, but I have a hunch you have a similar story from the recent past as well. I was driving to pick up some lunch, uh, probably an important detail as we'll see, uh, for me and my wife. Now, we think lunch dates while kids are at school are great. Uh, anyhow, the restaurant was literally like three blocks from my house, so it was super close. But in that short drive, I found a way to get mad at two groups of people while getting mad at the second group twice. Uh, group number one was a driver in front of me who wouldn't turn right on red, even though there was clearly no one coming. Nothing I could do about that except just wait. And group number two was another driver who decided to block the parking lot entrance, leaving me and my car hanging out into the street, all so they could back into their parking spot. Only they ended up not backing into that spot, but actually taking the closer spot that I was now trying to get to. Now, usually I don't mind parking further away and walking because practically I can use all the exercise, but this wasn't one of those times. Because I had to park a little bit further away, I thought, well, I can sort of hurry into the restaurant and get ahead of the people in the vehicle who just wronged me. Well, I did that, but while I was headed to the order pickup line, the other person was heading inside to order in a different line. So it really didn't matter that I rushed to beat them in line. And not only that, I got home tired from being around people for less than five minutes because my people muscles were weak. You know, those intangible mental and emotional muscles that sort of help you connect with people. And this story was just more evidence that my connecting with people muscles were weak and had atrophied or really deteriorated over the pandemic. Now, maybe you've noticed that you sort of get tired or worn out sooner or easier after being around people than you used to before the pandemic. And I think for many of us, the muscles we use to be strong or at least stronger in relationships have gotten weak after being away from people and not using them for so long. And then some of us think, well, one of the most rewarding parts of life is connecting with people, while also saying one of the most challenging parts of life is also connecting with people. And as we start sort of engaging and connecting with people more in person and also as we continue to do online, we could all probably use a refresher as we're connecting with people again. And about six months ago, we did a series called Relationships Online as sort of a refresh on some forgotten guidelines for all of our relationships, but particularly our relationships online. And by the way, I don't know if you know, I don't know about you rather, but I can't believe that that was six months ago already. And while the series we start today will be different from that series, Relationships Online, I thought it might be helpful to sort of recap the commitments we made in that series as sort of a foundation to get us ready for this series. I will treat every person as someone Jesus died for because they are and he did. I will do all I can to keep peace with all people. I will treat you with respect whether I'm with you or not. I will only allow the one who made me, owns me, and bought me to label me. I will limit my freedom to bring others to Jesus. So how are you doing with those commitments for your relationships online? Which of those do we need to transfer over to sort of all of our relationships in person or online? As we start this series, today's message is about how to react or respond to people who do something wrong to us. It really doesn't matter the reason that we were wrong. It might have been that it was on purpose with malicious intent. Uh, it might have been sort of an accident. Uh, maybe they were just completely clueless and not really thinking about other people. Regardless of the reason, if we don't have a plan or even proactively have a plan, then we all react in similar ways. Because before we know it, we are playing, paying back their wrong action with our own wrong action or our own wrong words. And some of us in the moment feel like we have no other choice. And then sometimes we even find people to tell our story to and they say, well, who could blame me for doing that wrong thing back to them? And the reason it feels like we don't have another choice is because when we are wronged, 
we're sort of thrown off our balance and sort of forced to sort of compensate back. And if someone walked up to you and sort of pushed you off balance, you would respond with everything in you to compensate to regain your balance. And when you are wrong, what is your default response? Maybe to yell, to get mad, withdraw from people. Whatever your initial or default response is, in the moment, it is hard to be kind to people. When someone does wrong to me, which rule do I think about? Maybe it's the golden rule, uh, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. And now this rule is fine until someone mistreats you or someone that you love. <clears throat> or maybe you think about the I rule, doing unto others as they have done unto you. And in the moment, it just sort of seems right and just, right? And unfortunately, we take it a slightly different step sometimes, and we sort of take it out on someone else. That I'll take it out on you because I can't take it out on, I can't take it out on her, I can't get back at them, I, I can't go back into the office and take it out on the people who wronged me. So, the someone rule. Doing unto others as someone else has done unto you. So which rule do you tend to have a, have a tendency to follow when someone wrongs you? How do you respond when someone wrongs you in your life? And while it can be fun sometimes to daydream about getting even, getting even, with, getting even makes us even with someone we don't want to be. Now, the way forward is obviously, of course, Jesus, and it's taught and modeled by him, but it's also modeled in an Old Testament story by an unknown individual whose life sort of intersects with King David. Uh, this story takes place after shepherd boy David, uh, but before King David. After David kills Goliath, King Saul brings David, now a national hero, close to him because you keep your friends close and your enemies, or your perceived enemies, closer. And King Saul saw David as a threat because it was prophesied about David that he would become the new king after Saul, which brought about all kinds of problems for Saul. So eventually, King Saul tries to kill David, but David escapes and becomes a fugitive. And he leaves his family and he lives out in the wilderness. Because David is a leader, though, he attracts other people to follow him, mostly other men who are angry and feel mistreated themselves. And before long, David has this mini army of about 600 of these men. They're sort of the outcasts from society and have no place to call home. And they're all angry because they have their own story of mistreatment and injustice. And in some ways, it seems that David is sort of looking for a place to take out his anger from all the wrongs of King Saul. But Saul is sort of untouchable. In fact, right before this, David had an opportunity to replace Saul as king, but it would have involved killing King Saul. Well, David's conscience, his religion, his God sort of bothered him, and he doesn't take the opportunity. Now, right after that situation, David finds a victim for all the wrong things that King Saul has done to him. We're going to start reading in 1 Samuel chapter 25. You can follow along the Bible app. If you don't have the Bible app, head to bible.com app. Once you're in the app, head to the More menu option in the bottom right corner, select Events, and you can find our church. We'll also have the notes and verses on the screen as well. 1 Samuel chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Then David moved down to the wilderness of Moan. There was a wealthy man from Moan who owned property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep shearing time. Now we think, like, what would we do? What would he do with 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats? But back then, this was wealth. That sheep shearing season was sort of when the people found out how much money they made or how much they made. And this was like a financial report for this guy. Verse 3, this man's name was Nabal, and his wife, Abigail, was a sensible and beautiful woman. But Nabal, a descendant of Caleb, was crude and mean in all his dealings. He was sort of difficult and harsh and really a pain to deal with, which actually was indicated by his name in Hebrew. Now, verse 4, when David heard that Nabal was sharing his she shearing his sheep, he sent ten of his young men to Carmel with this message for Nabal. Peace and prosperity to you and your family and everything you own. 
Now here's the message. I am told that it is sheep shearing time. While your shepherds stayed among us near Carmel, we never harmed them and nothing was ever stolen from them. Like basically, while your shepherds were sort of watching the sheep, we were keeping watch and didn't harm them or steal from them. And so in some sense, your prophet was sort of doing part to our protection. Not only did we not steal from you, we didn't allow other fugitives to steal anything from you either. Verse 8, ask your own men and they will tell you this is true. So would you be kind to us since we have come at a time of celebration? Please share any provisions you might have on hand with us and with your friend David. Like you're probably going to have extra and we sort of kind of helped you create that extra. So could you just sort of share some of that extra? Verse 9, David's young men gave this message to Nabal in David's name and they waited for a reply. Now while they're sort of waiting on Nabal, a word about David. David was actually a very violent man. Now, this would be sort of difficult for some of us based on what we learned about David from Sunday school or from our church, but he was not someone to mess with. And at times, he would raid villages, murdering every single person so there would be no one left. Uh, the same author records this for us a couple of chapters later in 1 Samuel 27. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels, and clothes. That David was a dangerous and a violent man, even by ancient standards. And Nabal should have known that, should have known better. And really, David, Nabal did know David. But, verse 10, who is this fellow David, Nabal sneered to the young men. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? Now, by saying son of Jesse, uh, that sort of shows that Nabal knew who David was. But Nabal continues, there are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where? Like basically, I didn't ask for David's help. I didn't need his help. I don't owe him anything. Verse 12, so David's young men returned and told him what Nabal had said. And then David said this to his men. Oh, well, it was worth asking. Not quite. Actually, get your swords, was David's reply as he strapped on his own. Like basically, if you're going to act like that, then you are going to pay. Now, one reason the author mentions David strapping on his own sword is possibly because David had a sword that was like no other sword. This sword was sort of a reminder that he did not need to return evil for evil. This sword was a reminder that he did not need to take matters into his own hands. This sword was the sword that David got from Goliath. This sword might have been sort of a visual aid of God's promise of protection and provision for David, that God chose David, that God anointed David to be the next king. And David did not need to take matters into his own hands. David could turn to God and God would intervene on David's behalf. But David is hurt and he's angry and he's been wronged several times in very significant ways from King Saul. But David knows King Saul is untouchable. So David sort of redirects that anger and hurt and feeling of wrong towards Nabal. Now, most of us have probably heard that hurt people hurt people. And this is likely a classic example of that. Then 400 men start off with David. Like, this is an epic overreaction. But you and I wouldn't know anything about overreacting to someone wronging us, now would we? And then David starts to prepare his justification and sort of his reasoning for his upcoming actions. And I think most of us do this, or at least I do. Uh, we have those sort of imaginary conversations with those people. And sometimes we even imagine there's an audience sort of listening to this well-crafted argument. And then our enemy realizes that I'm right and they sort of go away. Like, do you ever have those conversations where you're sort of going to say the right thing and win the conversation? Like, what can I do to get back at that person who has wronged me? 
And here's David's justification speech. A lot of good it did to help this fellow. We protected his flocks in the wilderness, and nothing he owned was lost or stolen. He's sort of building up his case that, that all the things I've done for this man, but he has repaid me evil for good. That Nabal responded with wrong to David's good, and, and now David is going to respond with evil to Nabal's evil, or, or wrong for wrong. And now, strangely enough, David is actually going to invite God into the equation, though not the way you might expect. Verse 22, May God strike me and kill me if even one man of his household is still alive tomorrow morning. Now, I'm going to basically kill Nabal, his male servants, and his sons, and that'll teach him the way to, that'll teach him to treat me that way. Which doesn't really make any sense, right? It sounds so strange. However, there's another character who plays a crucial role in this story, and of course, it's a woman, and a woman who named, is named Abigail, who's Nabal's wife. Verse 14, Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants went to Abigail and told her, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed insults at them. And these men have been very good to us, and we never suffered any harm from them. Nothing was stolen from us the whole time they were with us. In fact, day and night, they were like a wall of protection to us and our sheep. Uh, you need to know this and figure out what to do. For there is going to be trouble for our master and his whole family. He is so ill-tempered that no one can even talk to him. Well, Abigail wasted no time. Uh, basically, she assembles a caravan of food donkeys. Like, you're familiar with food trucks, right? Well, this is food donkeys. Like, hundreds of loaves of bread, figs, cakes, drinks, and grain all carried on donkeys. Verse 19, And said to her servants, Go on ahead. I will follow you shortly. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal what she was doing. Now, like they're headed to sort of meet David's 400 men who are heading to battle with David, with Nabal rather. And David's sort of repeating his argument, his justification, in preparation for what he's about to do to Nabal. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter, my lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. He's just a fool, just as his name suggests. But I never even saw the young men you sent. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, and you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands. Like Abigail sort of speaking into what she has just sort of happened, or what just happened with David and Saul, but also likely how she hopes David will respond to her husband. And Abigail is basically saying, like, God has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands. And David might have thought, like, he has? Let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. And here is a present that I, your servant, have brought to you and your young men. Like, this is sort of something that ruins David's angry plans to pillage and murder those, the same people, rather, who are going to bring the stuff that he was going to steal. Verse 28. Please forgive me if I have offended you in any way, she said. The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty, for you are fighting the Lord's battles. Now, David might have thought, like, oh yeah, I do fight the Lord's battles, and I don't even have to fight my own battles because God has got those battles. And you have not done wrong throughout your life, she said. Even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his pouch. Like, even though people are after you, your life is hidden away and safe. And this is where this woman, and really so many other women, are so smart in knowing how to connect with men, but also just people in general. That Abigail takes fugitive David 
back to little boy David, and little boy who was the guy who fought Goliath, and maybe Abigail sees David's sword that was previously Goliath's sword, and she says this, but the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. Remember God's past faithfulness, David. Remember when you went into the valley with Goliath? You weren't a warrior. You weren't equipped for battle. You didn't have a sword. You didn't. You basically just did what God wanted you to do, and God protected you. You, you didn't need to get even. You have no need to return wrong for wrong, David. And then Abigail speaks into David's future, basically saying, when you are the king, looking back on this season as a fugitive, what story do you want to tell? Verse 30, here's what she said. When the Lord has done all he had promised and has made you a leader of Israel, don't let this be a blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. Like, isn't that a better story, David? And David replied to Abigail, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. And then David accepted her present and told her, Return home in peace. I have heard what you said. We will not kill your husband. And basically, at some point, we all need an Abigail, right? Who can sort of talk us down. We all need someone who has access to us and to our hearts. We all need someone who has permission to go into the areas of our lives that we want to keep other people away from. We all need someone who will speak to our preferred future, or really even God's preferred future for us. We all need an Abigail, and when she shows up in our lives, we should see her and be wise enough to listen. And so this story really has three main characters with three different responses. Nabal, who does evil for good, David, who does evil for evil, and then Abigail, who proposes good for evil. Now, two of these are sort of predictable and expected in our world, and one is unexpected and remarkable. And if you're a Jesus follower, you really only have one option. And we have that one option because through Jesus, we have been on the receiving end of good for our evil. And then as Jesus followers, we're sort of called to model that, that Jesus died for our evil. He died for all our wrongs. And Jesus who did that doesn't just want us to believe those things about him. He wants us to follow him when he says this in Luke 6 verse 27. But to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Now we sort of push back saying like, Jesus, you don't mean love, you mean tolerate and ignore. Well, Jesus says, no, I mean love. And we say, well, what does that love even look like? But to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Like, not just avoid being unkind to them like David did, rather, do good to those who hate you. And you thought you were doing good not hurting him or not hurting her or not letting the air out of their tires or not yelling at them. Like, I, I thought I was doing good by what I didn't do. But Jesus again sort of pushes us and says this, bless those who curse you, pray for those who hurt you. Like this is not sort of doing something to them, this is doing something for them. And when you do something for them that they don't deserve, you show them God. When you pray for them, you reflect Jesus. When you bless them, you show them God's spirit living in you. And so what if you made the relationship commitment to do this? I will pay back good for evil. What would it look like to pay back good for evil? Uh, you don't have to actually do it, but you should at least know what that might look like. And if you aren't going through this right now or anything like this, uh, maybe you can sort of prepare right now for the future. What would it look like to pay back good for evil? Do you have some people in your life that are giving you evil? Are you sort of wondering how you should respond? Is this one of those connecting with people muscles that really needs some exercise? Because doing this might be the opportunity to let God's light 
shine through you. Not, not your beliefs, not your church attendance, that God's light would shine through you so that other people could see the God you reflect. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this story, this interesting story, and, and seeing how this can so easily relate to us. And God, it really is so easy for me to talk about this right now, or for us to hear this story, but to actually go and do it can be challenging. So God, would you help us to, to look at our lives and to look at those situations maybe right now where we struggle and we want to pay back evil for evil. Um, God, would you help us to see the opportunities that we can uh, pay back good for the evil that's been done to us. Uh, we can pay back good for the wrongs that have been done to us. That God, you would help us to, to push on ourselves to not just avoid doing the things we shouldn't do, but to do something good for the people who have done something hurtful to us. Maybe on purpose or maybe not. Maybe they're just careless and, and don't realize people around them. God, would you help us to reflect your light in other people's lives by doing this? And no doubt, this is something that many of us, we might have to practice and exercise because we haven't been around a lot of people for a while. But also the power of what this could do in a world that is sort of focused on themselves, that sort of doesn't see people outside of their own world. Would you help use us to shine your light into people's lives? Would you help us to shine hope and joy and peace into other people's lives, that they could see you through that, that you are the source of all that? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.